0: We're going to pick up part two of Walk in the Light. So that's what today is. It's Walk in the Light, part two. I don't promise to like go through and finish every time I start a, a sermon, as far as the notes go, just so you know. So um, we just want to go passage by passage or paragraph by paragraph as God leads at times being sensitive to the spontaneous leading of the Holy Spirit, maybe. Like, really, last week, there was just too much information. I didn't want to rush through any of it or skip it because I thought it was so important and foundational. And so, that left us with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 we covered last week. So, we will look at, actually, verse 8. So, we'll look at verses 9 and 10 today. So, it's Walk in the Light, part 2. And to provide the context, uh, let me read... Verse 7 through 10. Therefore, talking to Christians, in light of the fact that you've been transformed and changed and you're not an unbeliever anymore, therefore do not be partakers with them. That's unbelievers in their lifestyle, their worldviews. Why? Verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And like I said last week, just to set the context for you and bring you up to speed, verses 1 through 17 really is kind of a unit that goes together. And Paul is talking to Christians, the Ephesian Christians, and reminding them that they are, they're different from unbelievers. And how they, or they should be, and how they live, and how they think, in their desires, how they interact in the world. Paul's just saying if you're a Christian and God's changed you, then live like a Christian. Live like you've been changed supernaturally. And so he's making several contrasts between believers and unbelievers. One of those contrasts is that Christians are light and unbelievers are darkness, spiritually speaking. And so right now he's telling us since God saved us and the light of the world, Jesus Christ saved us. He made us light. We need to live like light in a very dark and sinful and lost world to give them hope. And a couple weeks ago we talked about Paul's exhortation, reminding, warning Christians they're not supposed to be partnering with the world. We're supposed to separate ourselves in certain areas from the world. So we're supposed to live separate lives, which means living holy lives. We're supposed to live in the world, but not live like the world, right? We're in the world, but not of the world. And I use the illustration, our boat is in the water, but the water's not supposed to get in the boat. So we're supposed to be living separated from unbelievers, But separation wasn't isolation, right? We're not supposed to cloister and retreat and have nothing to do with unbelievers. That would be against God's will. It would even be against Jesus' example because Jesus was the most holy one of all who never sinned, ever. Impossible for Jesus to sin, yet he, more than anyone, was out among sinners on a daily basis interacting with them. Regularly, um, I want to read a couple passages in light of that to follow Jesus' example of that wonderful balance or actually difficult balance we need to have in how Christians relate to sinners in the world. We need to be of the, uh, in the world but not of the world. We need to interact but not join with. We need to be separated but not isolated. And Jesus modeled that perfectly for us. You don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to read a couple of things that Jesus said and actually things Jesus did. Uh, Matthew 9 says this about Jesus, that early on in his ministry it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the dinner table in the house of, I think it was Levi, who was a tax collector who became Matthew the Apostle, Levi, he was a despicable, pathetic outcast of a sinner as far as the Jews were concerned, but Jesus had dinner at his house anyway, even though Levi or Matthew was a horrible sinner. He was the scum of the earth. That's how he was stigmatized. He was the worst of the worst. He was a thief, he was dishonest, he was a traitor, he was two-faced, he was a hypocrite, a pathetic, self-centered, selfish, money-hungry sinner. And Jesus said, hey, I'll have dinner at your house. Wow, that's a great model for us. And so he's having dinner at Levi or Matthew's house. Now, if Levi was like that, you can imagine what his friends were like. They were all the same. And so that's who was at dinner where Jesus was. So he got basically a whole bunch of sinful, wicked, pathetic scum of the earth having dinner together, and Jesus is the guest of honor. And it says that Jesus went to dinner there and that as he was reclining, and that's how they ate dinner, laying down on the ground, leaning on pillows. As he was laying down and reclining, having dinner in the house, behold, many tax gatherers, these guys were considered outcasts as well, like the IRS. You know, if you work for the IRS, you're stigmatized as an evil dishonest person, right? Well, that's these were IRS agents. Everybody hates them. Behold, many tax gatherers and sinners... Came to the dinner, and they were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And everybody heard about it. The whole town was a buzz because everybody knew who Jesus was because he was the miracle, miracle worker. Verse eleven: The Pharisees found out about it, and it says, "When the Pharisees saw this, they heard about it. Jesus is having dinner at, with all these sinners. What is he thinking? He's a holy man. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher." He's not supposed to affiliate with these sinful people. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, Why is your teacher, Rabbi, eating with the tax gatherers and sinners? How dare he affiliate, mix with, and eat with and talk to sinners? Verse 12 But when Jesus heard about this, Jesus said to them, He rebuked him, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician. And he's talking about morally, it's not the morally perfect who need a physician. But those who are sick with sin. But go and learn what this means, and he quotes Old Testament Scripture. I desire this is God talking, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Compassion for people, a heart for people, a heart for sinners is the heart of God. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Another parallel passage says I did not call come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. That was Jesus' mission. And if Jesus is going to call sinners to repentance, to turn from their sins so they can be saved and become light, he has to get to know the sinners first, right? Interact with them and show God's love to them and show his love to them. And one of the ways that he did that is he would have dinner with them. He would never compromise. He would never cater to their sin or justify their sin. But he did care for them, loved them, interacted with them, socialized with them, always on his terms. And that's how we're supposed to relate to unbelievers, We always relate to unbelievers on Jesus' terms. And that allows for close interaction but never compromising holy, godly virtues. So it's separation but not isolation. One more passage out of Matthew that Jesus said, commanded us on how we're supposed to interact with unbelievers. That is totally relevant to Ephesians 5 that we're going to look at. Jesus was talking to believers and he said, you're the salt of the earth. Then he went on to say that you are the light of the world. You are light if you are saved. Meaning, you emanate God's light. You reflect God's character. You are His messenger. Jesus is not here physically on the world. So we have to be Jesus for the world, don't we? The church does. So we reflect God's light. We are the moon that reflects the light of the sun. We don't have inherent light, innate light of our own. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men, hide, hide, or, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the pick measure. But rather, they put it on the lampstand up high and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men. Well, what does it mean to let your light shine? Because that's what Paul is saying. Walk as children of light. What does that mean? Jesus, well, he tells us. Let your light shine. has two implications. In such a way that they may see Your good works. To walk in light means to do do good works. To do good works in the world. To do good works to unbelievers. That's what it means to walk in light. Paul's going to say the same thing in Ephesians 5. Walk in light. Do good works in a sinful world. to sinners. And the purpose of that is to glorify your Father who is in heaven. By doing good works in the midst of a sinful world, to sinful people glorifies God. Because we represent Him in the world. So now go back to Ephesians 5. And that just kind of sets the stage of part two. As Christians, we've been saved out of sin. We've been saved out of darkness. We have the light of Christ living in us through the Holy Spirit. And because we are children of light, we're supposed to shine like light, and we are supposed to walk like light, and we are supposed to be a beacon of God's character in the world wherever we go. Fireflies for Jesus. So let's go ahead and look at verses 9 and 10. Last week, we looked at the first two points I wanted to make about walking in the light. We said that number one was... The transformation that made us children of light, and that was salvation in Christ and then verse uh, the second point was the obligation to walk as children of light. And that was the command second part of verse or verse eight. Let's look at the second two points today. Number three is the manifestation of walking in light. That's verse nine. the manifestation how we put off light, how we shine, what makes us shine? Paul's going to say, well, it's good works that make you shine. And then number four is the motivation for walking in light. Why should we walk in light? Why should we even want to walk in light? Why do we walk in light? That's our motivation, what motivates us to do good works. Why should we do good works? Very important question, a lot of practical implications. Let's go ahead and look first at verse 9. Verse uh, Picking up at verse 8, For you Christians were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light, and how I want you to shine. Or Here's the evidence that you're walking in light, the manifestation that you're actually walking in light. A good question to evaluate yourself is to say, am I walking in the light? It's always good to do self-evaluation. Isn't it? Some people are afraid of self-evaluation. I would say that sinners, oh, that includes all of us, we are all afraid of Of self-evaluation, aren't we? At one time or another, we are uncomfortable with that because we know something's going to be exposed. But it's good to do self-evaluation. And so here's some self-evaluation. Very specific evaluation to make sure that we are walking in the light. Uh, And Paul says, here's one way you can examine yourself and see if you're walking in the light. And Paul says you need to inspect the fruit in your life. The fruit. Uh, This word for fruit, very important. It's used in verse 9. It's used 67 times at least in the New Testament. And most of the time, almost all of the time, the word fruit is used metaphorically and spiritually, and it refers to the byproducts of our actions. It's actually tangible things that can be observed that reflect what's going on on the inside of us our attitudes, our heart, our desires. And when we flesh those out, we call that fruit things we, that we can see, the byproduct of our life. It's what the inside produces. And in the New Testament, uh, the word fruit is used in two ways, spiritually and metaphorically, regarding people in terms of their actions. And there's what we call attitude fruit and action fruit. Attitude fruit is in Galatians what uh, Bob Douglas just read. Some of the attitude fruits that we can examine in our lives and also in others' lives. Uh, Just to remind you of some of those attitude fruits, Um, Paul calls them the fruit of the Spirit. The byproduct of the Holy Spirit is what he's saying. If the Holy Spirit is inside of you and if you are being obedient to the Holy Spirit right now on a regular basis, then the Holy Spirit is going to produce good, godly manifestations in your life. And these are called the fruits of the Spirit. And this is attitude fruit. And some of these attitudes would be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So at any given moment, as a Christian, you could evaluate your state of being right now and the way you've been behaving in the last day or the last week or the last month and do some fruit inspection regarding your attitude. Have I had godly attitudes? And you're looking for these things, these attributes, love, joy, peace, patience. And the opposite of fruits of the Holy Spirit is rotten, stinking, smelly fruit. And Paul lists what those are. Here's the rotten, stinking, smelly fruit. That is not from the Holy Spirit, it's from your own sin. And Christians are susceptible to this. Christians can actually manifest these stinky fruits. And he lists them in Galatians 5 earlier. Deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Ooh, enmity is, is kind of like strife and fighting with somebody. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. Ooh, do you, does that ever happen to you? It happens to me. Stinky fruit in my life. Disputes. Do you ever dispute with anybody? Do you ever not get along with anybody and argue and fight with other people? Dissensions, conflicts, factions, envy, and on and on it goes. So these are attitude fruits, primarily the positive ones in Galatians 5.22. So we've got attitude fruits that we need to be manifesting on a regular basis. And then we have action fruits, where the emphasis is not so much on our attitudes like love, joy but the actual byproduct of that in tangible ways through actions. Uh, And those are all throughout uh, the New Testament. We're going to look at some of these. Paul lists some of these action fruits. Let's go back to Ephesians 5. So he says, Christian, you need to examine yourself. You need to evaluate yourself. You need to look to see if you're walking in the light. One of the ways that you will be walking in the light is if you're manifesting fruit in your life. He gives us three examples in verse 9, and he says, for the fruit, or the byproduct of living a life of light, consists in all goodness, or literally that word all means every kind of goodness. He uses three terms. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Those are three umbrella terms that include every good holy attribute listed in the Bible. So if you're walking in the light, then you will manifest and your life will be consisted of all goodness, all righteousness, and all truth. These are three generic umbrella terms. But they do have specific meaning, and I think they're in contrast to the three sinful terms he used in verse 3 of Galatians 5, where he said if you're an unbeliever, then consistently an unbeliever will be subject to immorality, pornea, or all kinds of impurity and all kinds of greed, and greed is covetousness, selfishness, materialism, hedonism, narcissism, wanting to get rich, thinking of yourself, not thinking of others, being stingy, not giving. So those are three generic terms that characterize an unbelieving life. And here, in verse 9, he gives three generic terms that should characterize the life of a believer. All kinds of goodness, all kinds of righteousness, all kinds of truth. But these words are very specific and have meaning in the New Testament and even in the Old. For example, let's look at this fruit. What is goodness, and is there goodness in our life? Well, the word for goodness, in this context... And the way it's used repeatedly is it's a word that refers to doing good for the welfare of others. Doing good for the welfare of others. Doing good things intentionally to the benefit of others. In other words, being a do-gooder in the legitimate sense of the term. Doing good to benefit others. So what is this? This is other-oriented, right? It's got eyes off of self and on other people looking around where the needs are. Who can I be good to? How can I be good That's doing good. Jesus was given to doing good, wasn't He? I mean, He's the master example. He did good all the time. That's all He did. He went around teaching, preaching, and doing good to sinful, pathetic people who didn't deserve good, did they? But Jesus did it anyway out of love because He was incarnate love. So Jesus was the master of doing good, doing things that were beneficial for the welfare of others. And you know what? You weren't supposed to do good just to people you like. We're actually supposed to do good to people we don't like or our enemies. That's Romans 1221. Romans 12:21. I want to read that because it's powerful. Because it's easy to think about doing good to people you like, right? Your friends, people you're comfortable with, people that did good to you, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That doesn't go far enough. God says in Romans 12:21, do not overcome, wait, do not be overcome by evil and don't retaliate but overcome evil with good. Wow. Somebody slaps you on the cheek, you don't retaliate and slap them on the cheek in return. And it's not even just refraining from retaliation. It's doing something good in return. So that's important, doing something good in return. Jesus was the Master. Like I said, it's the Last Supper. He's sitting down there about to eat with His 12 disciples. They've been walking and traveling. They're in sandals. Their feet stink. And they're about to eat, and the custom was for the butler of the house, the lowliest person, to wash everybody's feet before dinner. Nobody washed anybody's feet. Nobody thought to wash the feet of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world who was about to die. So Jesus gets up, girds his robe, and he goes around and washes the feet of the twelve apostles. One of those was Judas. Can you imagine? Jesus already knew that Judas had betrayed him. Jesus knew, and he says even at the dinner table, that one of you is a devil. Jesus knew that he was satanically possessed. Jesus knew that in the next 12 hours he was going to be betrayed, handed over, killed, and crucified by Judas himself. Jesus knew that. And it didn't matter. Knowing that, Jesus still went to Judas, the sinner, pathetic, demon-possessed, betrayer that he was, got down on his knees and washed Judas' feet. Jesus did good to the worst of all sinners. So it wasn't based on his emotions or what he felt. It was based on what Jesus knew was right, to do good. To others, I mean that's just powerful, and so we need to do the same. We need to be giving over to doing good things out in the world. Um, look at the next word, righteousness. This word has a lot of implications to it. It means to uh, right actions. Your life should be filled with righteousness, righteous fruits. That means right actions as opposed to wrong actions. Uh, this word consistently has a legal element, a legal nuance to it. It's a term from the courtroom. Okay legality is involved to be righteous means to do things that are just making decisions on the right basis as opposed to a corrupt judge who makes wrong decisions either because they're swayed from the fear of man or manipulation or bribery or money or pressure so it's making just right ethical decisions doing the right thing regardless of the peer pressure doing the right thing uh, despite what everybody else says to do not caving into pressures of the world. Making the right decision regardless of the consequences. Making the right decision regardless of what other people are going to think or say about you. Regardless of how they treat you. Doing the right thing. I'm reminded of Paris Hilton, the most famous woman in America right now. If you don't know her, that's okay. But anyway, she's like the daughter the granddaughter of the Hilton Hotels. So their family's very rich. But anyway, she's on the news all over the place. She was out driving and got drunk and so she got a DUI and went to court and got in trouble and got her hand slapped. And then actually the judge sentenced her to 45 days in jail for one of the richest, most famous Hollywood stars in America. How dare they try to put her in jail? So there was a possibility she wasn't even going to have to go serve in prison. But it, it ended up that she did go to jail. And that happened this week. And she was in prison for three days. And then the sheriff at the prison decided to let her out. and So they did. They let her out and she got out after three days. And uh, some people were outraged and some people were very happy. And um, some people were outraged to the point where it had pressure and they talked to the judge who originally gave the sentence. And so the judge required and asked and told that Paris Hilton needs to come back to the courtroom. And so she did. And the judge said, I didn't have anything to do with this. I didn't say you could get out in three days. As a matter of fact, I said you need to serve your full 45-day term in the prison. sheriff shouldn't have done this. That is not just. That is not right. So the judge was making the right decision. He was doing the just thing. This was a fair consequence. It was the right thing. So you have a sheriff making the wrong decision. He's not doing what was just or right. And then you have the judge who followed through and made sure that justice was done. This was the right thing to do. So when the judge slammed the gavel and said, 45 days, you got 42 more to go, that's it. Uh, according to the newspaper reports, Paris Hilton sh- shouted out in the courtroom, that's not right! And she screamed, that is not right. And that's that's what this word righteousness means. She, she is totally twisted in her thinking of what right and wrong is. What do you mean it's not right? That is the consequence you deserve, not just her, anybody that did what she did. So the judge was right. Uh, So you've got two conflicting opinions of what right and wrong is. And that's in society all the time, isn't it? One person says this is black, you say this is white, that's right, that's wrong. Uh, But the standard of righteousness and what is right and what is true, the right thing to do is always from Scripture and it's based on God's character. And the Christian needs to be living a lifestyle that's characteristic of living right, thinking right, making right decisions because God is righteous and he made us righteous in Jesus Christ and therefore we need to manifest the fruit of righteousness, doing that which is right and just. And then the last word there, fruit that should be in our life on a regular basis is truth. We need to be uh, living the truth, speaking the truth and just a simple definition of truth the way it is used is truth is that which corresponds to reality. Okay? So it it includes, it's got negative and positive elements to it. Negative elements are it's the opposite of deception and being a deceiver or telling half-lies or white lies. In the courtroom, there is a reason why they they say, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth? Because you know what? Some people are masters at withholding all of the truth. They'll tell a piece of the truth and it actually can turn out to be a lie or deceptive. Tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. Truth-tellers, living truthful lives. But the main thing I want to emphasize on this one right here is we go out into a sinful, dark, lost world. We need to be manifesting, producing truth wherever we go. And the main kind of truth that we need to do is one of the main ways the word truth is used in the New Testament, and that is the truth about Jesus Christ. For after all, He is the epitome of truth. Jesus is the incarnation of truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. Right? Right? I am the truth. And, speak, and also, Jesus said he was the light. So we're supposed to be giving off light, speaking truth, representing Christ wherever we go. That is the greatest thing that we can bring to a lost world. That is the greatest way you can have an impact on dark society, is as you go into the world, not just living right, but speaking right, and not just speaking right, but speaking specifically about Jesus Christ. That's the greatest way to be light in the world. Jesus said he was light. Jesus said he was the truth. So wherever we go, we're ambassadors for Christ bringing the truth. And there are times where the word truth is synonymous with the word gospel. Paul used it that way many times. He was a proclaimer of truth. And what it meant was he was a proclaimer of the gospel. First and foremost, that's what Paul did. He said, God has called me to preach the gospel. God didn't call me to baptize anybody or perform weddings or do funerals. He came to preach the gospel. So we need to talk about what is the truth. Or actually, what is the gospel? If I were to ask you what is the gospel, what would you say? Just think about it in your mind. What is the gospel? Because there's a lot of confusion, and I want to clarify it real quick and briefly for us about what the gospel is. Just a couple of reminders. First of all, the word gospel, the way it's used in the New Testament, it's not talking about the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are called gospels, but that's not the gospel. The word gospel means good news. The word gospel means good news. And the word gospel, it is a specific message with specific content. So that's what we speak to people. We speak good news to sinners. It's not just all negative. It's not just all uh, fire and hell and brimstone and judgment. That's not the good news. That's part of the good news. That is not all the good news. That doesn't bring hope to people. That doesn't bring hope to sinners. We need hope. We need good news as sinners. So first and foremost, gospel means good news. We bring good news to sinners. You're sick with cancer, and I have the cure. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, okay? So, gospel means good news. Gospel is a specific message. Gospel has specific content. Uh, gospel is specifically uh, explained to us in 1 Corinthians 15. But before I read that, listen to what Paul said about the gospel. This very specific message. After talking about sin, or just before talking about sin, he says, For I, the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am proud of the gospel. Why, Paul? For it, the gospel, is the power of God. So the message of the gospel is powerful. It is supernaturally powerful. It is so supernaturally powerful, it changes lives. It literally changes destinies. Did you know, we cannot change people on the inside. We can't. We can't change their minds. We can't change sinners. I couldn't change myself. There is supernatural power that is prerequisite to change a sinner on the inside. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. The power of God. The same power that created the world out of nothing is the same inherent power of the gospel that can change a human soul from a sinner to a saint. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. That's what the gospel does. This good news, a very specific message that has the inherent power of God, is to be proclaimed so that people can be saved. This is how people get saved. This is how you become a Christian, by hearing the gospel. You can't become a Christian by doing good works, or just feeling sad, or doing your own thing. There's only one way to become a Christian, it is by hearing and understanding the gospel message of good news. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone. It's for the whole world, not just those that God likes. It's for the whole world, every person made in God's image. But it is efficacious, or it makes a difference, or it actually works and changes to everyone who believes. That's the condition. By faith. We hear the message of the gospel and what that is, and when you truly understand it and when you truly believe it, you can be saved. God can transform you and change you for eternity. You can become a Christian you can be born again you become you become a believer you become adopted into god's family you become light and transformed and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son that's what salvation means it's a change on the inside your eternal destiny has just changed you will not go to hell you are going to heaven all of your sins are forgiven this is what salvation means it's the greatest thing in the world isn't it we should be taking this message to sinners To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to everybody, that is the gospel. It is powerful. And I said it had specific content. Well, it's not complicated. The first thing I asked you is, what is the gospel? Could you summarize the gospel in a paragraph? Some Christians can't. They need eight paragraphs. But it's not that complicated. Did you know the gospel is simple enough that a six-year-old could understand it? Yeah. At their level, but they can understand it. It is simple. Look at how simple it is. I'll just read 1 Corinthians 15, where the only specific definition of the gospel is given in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul says to the Corinthian Christians, uh, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. I make known to you the gospel. I'm going to define the gospel. Here's the content of of what I labored to preach to you, the gospel. The reason this is so important is because uh, the gospel is under attack. I don't know if you knew that. It is attacked, It's under attack in the world. Sadly, it is even more under attack within quote Christianity and in the church. It always has been for two thousand years. And from Satan's perspective, it makes sense to attack the gospel, distort the gospel, tweak the gospel, pervert the gospel, dilute the gospel, smother the gospel. Add infringements to the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is how people get saved and if you can mess up the gospel, you keep people from getting saved and people go to hell and Satan is rejoicing and celebrating. So that's what Satan's been doing for 2,000 years. His primary attack is on the gospel with deception and lies. And many times, uh, the way it is explained and the way Satan attacks it is he makes it sound like it's very true. Oh, that sounds very good. Oh, that sounds very true. But actually... A lot of it's true and some of it is false. And you only need a little poison sometimes in the drink to kill a person. So Paul is giving us the clear, simple, biblical definition of the gospel. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. You welcomed it when I preached it to you, when I came to Corinth and planted this church. Paul planted He was a church planter, by the way. He believed in church planting. And he planted a church in Corinth. And he was there for 18 months to help get it going. And then he left like the highness and went to Mexico, I think. The gospel, no, I'm just kidding, he didn't go to Mexico. Um, he went somewhere else? Though The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, they welcomed the gospel. Uh, they said they believed in the gospel. But only God knows the heart, ultimately, right? So that's why in every church, throughout all the ages, there will you know be pre- people who profess to believe in the gospel, but there will always be wheat and tares. Legitimate Christians and phony Christians. Real Christians and those who are just a facade. But Jesus said it would be that way. And Jesus told his apostles, don't try to pull out the wheat. You can't do that because you don't know the hearts of men. Only God does. So you got to let the weeds grow up with the wheat until they can be exposed and deal with their sin. But you you can't deal with the hearts and the motives because we can't see the hearts and the motives. But anyway... Uh, He says, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. In other words, they live by the gospel. They say they're Christians. This is how they conduct their life in accordance with biblical truth. By which also you were saved. So the gospel saved you. And he says this conditional statement. That is if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. That is if you legitimately believed what I said. Maybe there's a false belief or an insufficient belief. And you didn't truly believe. And that means you never got saved in the first place. You never were born again, is what he's saying. That's the weeds among the wheat. Paul recognized that. He was, the, he was the all-time greatest church planter. I can't compete. We cannot compete with the Apostle Paul. And I am comforted in knowing that he had weeds in his church. That's just a spiritual truth. So, by which you were also saved, if you hold fast the faithful word, which is the gospel that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, unless your belief was not real. Your faith, your belief in Jesus, it was empty for some reason. It was either deficient... Or you just had a deceptive heart. Or Satan was blinding you. All that's just to say, everybody who says, I'm a Christian, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian. Only God knows their heart. We have to take people at their word if they make a profession of faith, but we can also examine the fruit of their lives. So he goes on. And so now he's going to give the content of the gospel. I told you it was simple because it's only two verses. For I delivered to you as a first importance that I also received. Here it is. Here's the gospel. That Christ, there it is, Christ, Jesus Christ, is the gospel. He is the focal point of the gospel. He is the center, the epicenter, and the circumference of the gospel. The gospel is Christ. You can't go wrong if you give the Sunday school answer, Jesus. That's correct. Jesus is the gospel. It's all about Him. That's the main point. When we go out into a sinful world, what should we be doing? Living right, living holy, doing good, doing good works, and talking about Jesus first and foremost with whoever we're interacting with in this lost world. It's Jesus. That's the first word in the gospel. Christ. That means he is the Messiah. What does that mean? To a Jew, and in Paul's mind, that the gospel is Messiah, that means that Jesus fulfilled everything taught and prophesied about the Messiah, the Anointed One in the Old Testament. There were hundreds and hundreds of prophecies made about this coming Messiah who would be the Savior and the King. And related to Almighty God Himself. And He would overcome sin and He would bring salvation. He'd be a light unto the Gentiles. He'd be the King of Israel. The Savior of the world. The Eternal One. Alpha Omega. That is the Christ. That's what that means. Everything in the Old Testament that talked about what the, the Savior would be is culminated in that term Messiah. And Paul is saying that's who Jesus is and that is the Gospel. So point number one, what is the Gospel? It is Jesus. It is believing the right things about Jesus. That's very important today because we've got a lot of people believing in Jesus, don't we? I would say that most of America believes in Jesus. If you don't believe me, look at some of the Newsweek uh, annual interviews that they do. Newsweek, Time Magazine, every year they take polls. Do you believe in God? Did you know that 93% of Americans believe in God? That is so exciting. That gives me warm fuzzies. Well, actually it doesn't. Because most of America doesn't actually believe in the biblical God. Jesus said, few there be that find it. But there are those who say they believe in Jesus. Other religions say they believe in Jesus. Islam said they believe in Jesus. They do. Islam, the largest religion in the world, believes in Jesus. But I don't get excited about that because they believe the wrong thing about Jesus. And the Bible warned us of that. 2 Corinthians said there will be another Jesus, a counterfeit Jesus, a pseudo-Jesus, a false Jesus. Watch out for that Jesus. Every religion you can think of that isn't true biblical Christianity, for the most part, believes something about Jesus or says, I believe in Jesus. Mormonism believes in Jesus. Mormonism says Jesus is the Savior. Mormonism says Jesus died on the cross. But they believe the wrong thing about who Jesus is. They deny that Jesus is eternal. The Bible says Jesus is eternal. He is uncreated. He is Almighty God. Jesus is to be worshipped. No other religion on planet Earth says that Jesus is to be worshipped, but the Bible does. The wise men came, Matthew 2.11, bowed down and worshipped baby Jesus and what it says. So Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is uncreated. He is one with the Father. He is the creator of the universe. He is to be worshipped. He's the only way to heaven. That's Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be telling people when we go into the world, to share the gospel with sinners. So it starts with Jesus. Go back to the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. This is the truth that we're supposed to be manifesting and shining as light in the world. Um, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So the part two is what Jesus did. Part one is who Jesus is. We talk about who Jesus is accurately and make sure they really understand. And then it's what Jesus did. He died for our sins. You've got to talk about sin when you're talking when you're sharing the truth of the light of the gospel with people around you. They've got to hear the dirty word sin, because we're all sinners. Aren't we? We were born sinful? We can't save ourselves from sin. But Jesus died for our sin. He got punished for our sin. He willingly died. He was not a helpless victim. He willingly, purposefully came down here to die on the cross and be executed and absorb the wrath of Almighty God for every sin that was committed all throughout history. And Jesus absorbed that sin on our behalf. He was our substitute. So Jesus got punished for your sin. That's good news. So you go up and tell people you have cancer of the soul. You are terminally ill. You could die and go to hell forever. That's bad news. They'll usually say, well, that's not fair, or that's not true, or I've never killed anybody. That is bad news. That's scary news. That's frightening news. But don't just give them the bad news. But the good news is there's a cure. And you know what? The good news is that you don't even have to buy the cure. It's free. The cure is free. It's guaranteed. And the cure is that Jesus Christ died in your place, took all of God's wrath for all the sin of the world, absorbed it for you. He died as your substitute. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ based on who we said He was and believing that He died in your place, you can have total forgiveness of sin, be healed of your eternal spiritual cancer, be adopted into his family, go to heaven, and even know him right now in this life and receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit and be in the family of God. That is good news, isn't it? And that is the gospel that we're supposed to be sharing with people. So, this is the gospel that Christ died. Emphasize who Christ is. Christ died for our sins. Uh, the fact that he had to die because God must punish sin with death. That's why he had to die. He died for our sins, because God hates sin and must punish sin, and He died as our substitute. Notice He did it according to the Scriptures, fulfilling everything the Old Testament said about the Messiah, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was buried in accordance with what Scripture said, that He would go into the tomb, He'd be there for three days. He, re- he was raised, meaning He came back from the dead. He overcame death for us. And He said, because I live, you also can live and overcome death. That's hope. That's good news. That's the resurrection. And the fact that He came back from the dead, that means Jesus is alive today, isn't He? Jesus is alive today. Jesus is in heaven physically, and Jesus is also in our hearts through faith in Him, through the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, Jesus lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, says Colossians chapter 1. And Jesus is in our midst here in worship, according to the Bible. He is in His church. He is among His people. Jesus is alive. He rose again from the dead. That's not true of any other religious leader that founded a religion. They, they're dead and still in the grave. Jesus is alive, reigning over all things. That's the gospel. So what is the gospel? It's telling people the right thing about who Jesus is, that he's God in the flesh, and telling them what Jesus did. He came down here to die in the place of sinners, to be punished by God the Father, to absorb the wrath based because of our sin, and Jesus died in my place as a substitute And as a result, I can have forgiveness of sin. And if I put my faith, and Paul said that, it's based on your faith. Did you receive this truth? And did you put your faith in this truth? And did you believe that Jesus is the Savior and that He did die for you? If you do, then you just cry out to God and you ask God to come into your life and to forgive you. God, forgive me of my sin. God, I believe what you say about who Jesus is. He is the Lord. And God, make Jesus the Lord of my life. Make Him my Savior. Save me from my sins. Now! And if you believe that sincerely then God will save you in a moment of time. And you will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son and have eternal forgiveness of sin and you will be born again. What an awesome, great, and glorious truth. And uh, I mean, I was thinking about it this week. Some things that I heard and things I saw going on in the church, around the world, uh, here in America. And I thought, you know what? I'm, I think I'm going to stop and camp out on the simple gospel. The simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's where it's at. That's what it's all about. That's where it all begins. Everything else flows from that. Coming to know Jesus Christ personally. That's why we are here. And I've said this before. The gospel that saves, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not just for people who are not saved. The gospel is for Christians too. I need the gospel. Did you know this week I lived by the gospel. I depended upon the gospel this week. Why? Because I was tempted to sin this week. God, I need your forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for dying for me, being punished for my sins. Praise the Lord and forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. Change me. So the gospel is for Christians too, just as much as for unbelievers. So that is the truth and that is the fruit that we are to manifest as we walk in the light. So next week, shall we go on to the motivation of why we do all this? Um, I've already got 55 minutes of stuff I can say On point number four, I just want you to know that. So (laughs) we'll try to squeeze it in next week. And those of you that are traveling around the world, we're posting our sermons on our website and you can click in for family devotions while you're in Cancun or Tahiti or whatever it is next Sunday. So anyway, thanks for being with us and listening to God's Word. And let's go ahead and pray to God and thank Him for the fact that He's made us light for those of us who know Him. And that he's allowed us to be fruit and he has made us conduits of giving truth to the world. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our time of fellowship. Today we thank you for raising up this local fellowship. Again, thank you for every person you have brought our way. And may we continue to care for and nurture every person, every soul. Made in your image that you care for, that Jesus died for. Thank you for our visitors today. God, also pray for people in our fellowship who couldn't be here today. Many are traveling, have other responsibilities. I pray you'd be with them, keep them safe, bring them back to us and to our fellowship. And those that are traveling over the next week or actually the next month, God, we pray that you'd go before them and keep them safe as well. And God, remind us of some of the truths we've talked about out of your word today that you would continue to remind us. We are supposed to be light, so we're supposed to shine accordingly. And we're supposed to manifest good fruit. And uh, we've been reminded of what some of that fruit is. And God, help us to be bold and courageous about speaking truth to unbelievers. It's, we can't do it in our own strength. We need your help to overcome that fear. So, and also that you would create opportunities for us to do that. So we commit our time to you. We thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.